You're listening to the trade today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson. As always, thanks for tuning in. The Affordable Care Act once again goes before the U.S. Supreme Court today. Justices are going to hear oral arguments about whether portions or all of the fa- of the act should be struck down. Attorneys challenging Obamacare will try to make the case that the entire law should go, a decision that would throw the nation's entire health care system into chaos. But many onlookers say the legal case for striking down the law is dubious at best. Here to help us understand what's happening with this case and its possible implications are two people we turn to pretty often on matters of health care and the Supreme Court. Julie Ravner is Kaiser Health News chief Washington correspondent and has covered health care for more than 30 years. Julie, welcome back to Detroit Thank today. you for having me. Yes. And Dahlia Lifwick uh, writes about the courts and the law for Slate and hosts the podcast Amicus. Dahlia, welcome back to Detroit today. Thank you. Thanks. Okay, Julie, I want to start with you before we get into the case. We were just talking about this new vaccine trial result from Pfizer. Uh, How significant do you think this news is and where does it put us in the pursuit of going back to some relative state of normalcy here in the U.S.? Well, it's a process. It's obviously good news, but you know, it's a it's so far what we have is a press release from Pfizer saying that their early results are very good, which is clearly a good thing. There's just a long way to go uh, before the FDA is able to give it even an emergency use authorization. And before it starts, they, they're able to manufacture enough of it to actually get it to people. So, you know, it's it, it's excellent news. It just doesn't mean that anything's going to happen tomorrow or next week or next month. We're probably best case looking at next spring. I can, by the way, answer the question from the last segment about Operation Warp Speed. That's mm. the government program mm-hmm. um, that has fed an enormous amount of money to vaccine manufacturers to help them sort of gear up and do this. Interestingly, Pfizer was not part of Operation Warp Speed. Hmm. This particular vaccine did not come from that government effort. Hmm. So so we should note that Pfizer is, of course, a Michigan company, and uh, our governor, Gretchen Whitmer, has said the vaccine would be produced here in Michigan. Give us an idea of what an operation of that scale would look like if you're trying to produce a vaccine that that is going to need incredible uh, wide distribution like uh, the coronavirus vaccine would that what would that what would that look like um, it's going to be a very big deal. One, one. Uh, I think most experts assume that there are going to be eventually multiple vaccines, mm-hmm. um, that it probably won't be just this vaccine. Um, the other difficulty with this vaccine is not so much the manufacture, but the distribution. It has to be kept at a really, really, really cold temperature. It's minus 94 degrees, and I think that's Celsius. I'm not sure. Mm. Um, but really, but colder than your average freezer, which means that, that the, distribu- the actual distribution points of actually getting it into people it's going to be difficult because you can't just, you know, put it in a cooler and take it somewhere and you can't send it through the mail. So um, it, that the distribution of this is going to be, I think, probably more complicated than the manufacturer. Mm-hmm. Okay, let's uh, turn to the ACA, which is back in front of the justices of the Supreme Court. Dahlia, uh, explain to us the basics of this case against uh, the ACA. What are the attorneys expected to argue in front of the high court? Well, you said this case in italics because it's the third run. <laughs> I was going to say, we, we do this um, all the time, right? <laughs> yep, yep. So I guess it's useful to just see it in context. This is really the third 
big consequential effort to take down the Affordable Care Act, um, having not succeeded at that in 2012 and 2015. So this third version uh, comes about after King versus Burwell, the 2015 effort to uh, dismantle the Affordable Care Act in the court. Um, and John Roberts uh, famously again defects and votes to uphold the thing. So I think in an effort to do something symbolic after several attempts to repeal the ACA outright, Congress decided um, they were going to just go for this symbolic big win at the end of 2017. So they eliminated, they zeroed out the tax penalty that mm-hmm. was associated with the individual mandate. That was the part that was challenged in the first challenge. And then the argument became Texas and a group of, I think, 20 states then sued and said, look, with this zeroed out tax penalty without uh, this mandate, and that was, they say, the linchpin of the entire 2,000 pages of legislation, not only uh, does that fall, there's no constitutional basis anymore in the taxing power, but furthermore, the entire statute is unconstitutional and has to fall. Um, so it's a kind of a big old Hail Mary. It's an effort to say this one provision, when it got zeroed out by Congress, kind of like a big monster game of Jenga, pulled mm-hmm. the entire, entire statute down with it. And of course, it doesn't bear repeating because we've talked about this for, for months now. But if the entire ACA were to fall, um, we're talking about millions of people in the middle of a pandemic yeah. losing access to health insurance. Right, right. So, uh, of course, the makeup of the court is different now than the last time the ACA came up for uh, judicial review. Uh, Give us an idea of what we might expect from those differences. Well, we still have John Roberts, who, as I said, has been a pretty stalwart uh, defender of the ACA. And and worth saying in that uh, King versus uh, Burwell challenge uh, was the one who said Congress would have wanted us to do this with a scalpel. Mm -hmm. Congress would have wanted us uh, to be really, really precise in what we disturbed. And so he's, I think, fairly loudly signaled twice now that he's not the guy who's going to take a hatchet to the entire act and that quite conversely, he's going to attempt to salvage it. And Brett Kavanaugh, who is a new member of the court, uh, replacing Anthony Kennedy uh, on a lower court, made a similar move Mm -hmm. uh, to try to preserve the intent of Congress in passing the ACA. Now, we do have Neil Gorsuch uh, at the court, and we have Amy Coney Barrett at the court. So it's, in that sense, an entirely new lineup, Mm -hmm. um, all very, very conservative judges, but in some sense, all strict constructionalists, textualists who might have a hard time with the boldness of uh, this attack. So I think if you were going to do it straight, kind of liberal conservative, it's a different court in the direction of probably not 
inherently loving what the Affordable Care Act sought to do. But I think if you split it down several other sort of matrices, it seems to me as though this is a court that would take very, very seriously the language of the statute, the intent of Congress when they passed it, when they zeroed out the mandate, they could have taken the entire statute down, Mm -hmm. chose not to. So I don't think it's a simple uh, left-right calculus. It never really has been with this statute. I mean, one of the things that that I think uh, a lot of people who pay attention or casual attention uh, to the Supreme Court uh, may not necessarily be familiar with is the idea that the quote unquote conservative justices, their their approach to to the work includes a fair amount of deference to the legislative branch. In other words, the idea that, uh, you know, Congress is there to make the laws, not the court, and the court is just there to make sure that the laws don't conflict with the Constitution or or other other provisions. And so when you're talking about conservative jurists, the idea of overturning a law, something that Congress voted to do and decided to do, is is pretty extreme and, and somewhat rare. I, I think that's exactly right. I think that one forgets that core quote-unquote, constitutional conservative legal values include paying meticulous attention to legislative intent, uh, not overwriting the intentions of the legislature with your own values. Um, And I also think it's worth saying that this particular challenge has almost no defenders, so that people, conservative uh, legal, great legal thinkers who were on the side of the other cases have peeled off in this case, really prominent conservatives um, who have said exactly what you're saying. This one, this one is not a meritorious challenge. This feels like a bridge too far. And so in some sense, um, you really do have the court being asked to kind of get out over it in a lot of sort of intellectual and philosophical ways that even an extremely conservative 6-3 court might not be apt to do. Hmm. Uh, I'm talking with uh, Julie Rovner, who's Kaiser Health News Chief Washington Correspondent, and Dahlia Lithwick, who writes about the courts and the law for Slate, about the Affordable Care Act being back in front of the Supreme Court today, challenged yet again, and potentially uh, could be overturned by the high court. Uh, If you want to join the conversation, give us a call. Tell us what do you think about this latest attempt to get rid of the ACA. We especially want to hear from you if the ACA has made a significant difference in your life. Uh, How has it affected your health? How has it affected your business. Um, And we'd like to know whether your feelings about Obamacare have changed over the last 10 years. What used to be one of the most divisive laws on the books now has record high support uh, in the polls. As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Facebook or Twitter and put comments there. And we'll try to work them Uh, into the conversation. Also give us a sense of what you think of the timing of this case. Uh, Of course, when this case was filed and accepted, nobody knew we'd be in the middle of uh, a pandemic the way we are. But of course, uh, striking down the Affordable Care Act in the middle of that pandemic would have a really different kind of effect than uh, any of us probably 
uh, imagined. Uh, Julie, I want to start there with you. If the Supreme Court surprises us and does strike down the ACA, what would that mean for the nation's health care system? And especially what would that mean in the middle of this pandemic? Well, it would be a giant mess, even if we weren't in the middle of the pandemic. Mm-hmm. There's so much of the healthcare system that is now predicated on the existence of the Affordable Care Act. I mean, yes, the immediate effect would be upwards of 20 million people losing their health insurance, if not right away, then, then very quickly because the federal funds would stop flowing. So the money for the Medicaid expansion would stop and the money to help subsidize people who are buying their own insurance. That's the majority of the money. Both of those funding streams would end and people would in fairly short order, uh, either states would have to, to cut those people off of Medicaid or people wouldn't be able to pay their premiums and their insurance policies would get canceled. But the, the Affordable Care Act was much, much larger than just the individual mandate and the reform of the individual insurance market and the expansion of Medicaid. Those are just two of, of 10 enormous uh, pieces of this. So it could reach to everything, including the uh, ability to make uh, cheaper copies of expensive biologic drugs. And there was a permanent authorization of the Indian Health Service and lots of for protections for people with employer insurance, the ability to keep uh, adult children on their plans, the ability to get um, uh, preventive care at no out-of-pocket costs, the restrictions on profits for insurance companies. I mean, I could go on for the rest of the half an hour. It would be a huge, huge, huge mess. Mm. And if the court takes a more exacting approach to this, uh, what would be some of the things that they could perhaps pare back or change that would stop short of, of uh, overturning it that would also have an effect on, uh, on people's lives, Julie? Well, of course, the easiest thing the court could do is say that, yes, without the tax penalty, the individual mandate is unconstitutional because that's what the court, the case is really about. Mm -hmm. The law now says you have to you either have to have health insurance or pay a penalty of zero. And that's because they were the when they were doing the tax bill in 2017, they were using uh, a special procedure that did not allow them to eliminate the mandate itself. It just allowed them to to get rid of the penalty. If they took that out, basically nothing would happen because there is effectively no mandate. No mandate, right. Right. Now, but the other thing they could say is what the Trump administration originally argued, which is that you could that the if the mandate is unconstitutional, then the things that were pretty much tied directly to that mandate would also have to go. Well, the things that were tied directly to that mandate are the pre-existing condition protections because that was the deal the insurers made. They said, look, we can't afford to to sell to everybody who has pre-existing conditions because otherwise our entire individual market would be full of sick people. Healthy people wouldn't sign up. So the idea was to uh, encourage or coerce healthy people to sign up by saying you either have to have health insurance or pay this penalty. If the penalty goes away, only sick people will sign up. Now, the argument against that is that the mandate's been gone since the beginning of 2019, Mm -hmm. and the individual market is doing okay, despite the Trump administration's efforts to, you know, to to drag it down. We've seen more insurers come back in. We've seen premiums stable or in some cases falling. So it turns out that the mandate wasn't what got healthy people to sign up? The subsidies for what got healthy people to right, sign up. The right. the, the uh, you know the financial help. So I mean, so the court could do that because they could say these things are inextricably linked. But you could you could make a pretty good argument on the other side that yeah, it's not that it's not that the law can't stand without the mandate because the law's been standing without the mandate for two years and 
things are pretty and things much are okay. okay. Yeah, yeah. Okay, we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to continue our conversation with Julie Ravner and Dahlia Lithwick, and we are going to get to your calls. Kelly in Detroit, Stephanie in Shelby Township, Peter in Birmingham. Hang on the line. We will hear from you next. If you want to join them, 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. This is Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, as always. Thanks for tuning in. My guests are Julie Ravner, Kaiser Health News Chief Washington Correspondent, and Dahlia Lithwick, who writes about the courts and the law for Slate and hosts the podcast Amicus. We're talking about the Affordable Care Act, which is yet again being challenged in the U.S. Supreme Court today and potentially could be overturned, certainly could be uh, altered or pared back in some way. Uh, we want to hear from you about what you think about that. What do you think about the Affordable Care Act? What do you think about the role that it's played in your life over the last 10 years? What do you think about the role it's played in your life over the last eight months as the pandemic has altered all of our lives in really uh, particular ways? Uh, as always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Facebook and Twitter. We'll try to work your comments into the conversation. Let's start with Kelly in Detroit. Kelly, what's on your mind? Hi, Stephen. Thanks for taking my call. Sure. Um, I'm really glad you're bringing this up today because I'm a 42-year-old woman who, until the ACA was enacted, spent the first half of her adult life completely without any health care. Oh, wow. Um, except for one time at one job. Um, and I was... Uh, other than that job, I've been an athlete and an artist, so primarily a freelancer. So without the ACA, I just had no coverage. Um, and as an athlete and an artist, I had to put my body through some pretty intense physical demands. Mm. Well, they've now come home to roost, and I'm currently in physical therapy for rotator cuff issues and for herniated disc issues. And so if I lose the ACA, I go back down to basically having to get assistance from my family wow. when my back goes out. Or if I suddenly have a flare-up with my endometriosis because I couldn't get any help there because that was a pre-existing condition. Hmm. I also happen to have ADHD, and that's a pre-existing condition. So if all of that goes away, I lose my mental health coverage. I lose my coverage for all these injuries that are starting to come to the to bear from 20 years or, well, 30, 40 years of athleticism. And um, the ACA is not perfect. I much prefer, you know, single payer. Mm. But it's the only thing that's taking care of me. Mm. Uh, uh, Kelly, before I uh, ask our guests to respond, I, I wonder if you can talk about what you did before. I mean, you said you spent half of your adult life with with no insurance. Give us a sense of of how you how you dealt with the with the healthcare system uh, without insurance. I mean, you try not to deal with it without insurance. That's the truth. Yeah. You know, you, um, 
if I needed to do anything as far as like OBGYN visits, that was always Planned Parenthood. And going to those, depending on if there are protesters outside or not, can be a very frustrating and harrowing experience. Mm. And um, I, I, I never got mental health care because even if there were free clinics or free help, it's getting mental health care for ADHD as an adult is incredibly difficult, incredibly challenging, mm. um, especially when you are, when I am a person that is, uh, who, who doesn't seem like a person with ADHD because I'm an, an artist as well as an athlete. So um, I don't, I, I just don't seem like a person with ADHD. So it always takes me having to convince the professionals. Mm. And um, so I would just avoid it. Uh, I did a lot of the like home, you know, home cure things for mm. my endometriosis. I've taken so much Advil over the last, you know, 30 years that my kidneys are now uh, in danger and we're keeping an eye on those. And I'm only 42. Mm. Technically, I was a healthy person, you know, but people break down mm. and I had mental illness and I had a const I had endometriosis. Mm. So I just wouldn't, if I got a big injury that my, um, that the coach or one of my team therapists couldn't handle, you know, I just waited out really. And if I absolutely, absolutely had to get antibiotics, then I'd have to go wait in free clinics oh. or ER rooms. And I remember one time I broke my thumb and I waited in the ER for 18 hours for a thumb. Wow. So, uh, Kelly, yeah. I really appreciate the call and, and your sharing uh, that experience, which I think is unfortunately not terribly uh, uncommon uh, in, our, in our country. Uh, Dahlia, listening to Kelly, uh, I, I was sort of struck by the question about what kinds of things the justices think about when they make decisions. Of course, they're thinking about the law and they're thinking about the Constitution, but whatever they decide has a real effect on people and on people's lives. And here, Congress, when it passed this law, was thinking specifically about people like Kelly, who didn't have insurance before, and, and trying to figure out a way to make their lives better. How much should the justices be thinking about that as they as they do this, and how much do they think about the effect on on individuals? Yeah, I mean it's a great question, Stephen, and I suspect it differs from justice to justice and from case to case, right? I think each justice would tell you, on the one hand, that they are deeply compassionate and empathetic people who are well aware of real life implications and in the same breath that they are oracular brains and bats who, you know, try <laughs> to dissociate from emotional arguments and just apply the law. So I think it, 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 there's so many kind of levels of false consciousness that it's a little hard to, to pierce. I, I will say, you know, listening to Kelly, I'm very mindful of the Amy Coney Barrett hearing that mm -hmm. happened feels like a thousand years ago, but it was only <laughs> Just a, couple a few weeks. short weeks ago. And you'll recall this was uh, the Senate Democrats, almost the totality of their strategy was to tell stories like Kelly's. Mm -hmm. I mean, to tell over and over and over again the stories of their constituents who, but for the ACA, uh, would, you know, either have been catastrophically ill or dead or bankrupt. Uh, and so I don't think Kelly's story is by any way 
shape or form an outlier. Uh, and you'll remember that Judge then, now Justice Barrett, deflected almost all of that um, by just saying this has kind of nothing to do with my feelings about, you know, your unfortunate illness. This is just a really arcane technical question about severability, mm-hmm. right? That's the Jenga argument that whether this law can survive intact if one piece of it is deemed unconstitutional. And I think in that sense, she kind of set the template for at least how she, who, by the way, was very critical in writing about the earlier um, ACA cases and about John Roberts' choice to uphold it. But I think the, the template that she set, which you'll probably see, I guess, or hear at this morning's argument is, you know, very, very sorry that people may or may not suffer, but my job is to do a strictly legal statutory probe into this matter of severability and what Congress intended. And, you know, does that mean that the fact that any one of these justices knows somebody who is sick or is aware that we're in a pandemic or aware of really catastrophic consequences? Of course, they're aware and they're also aware of this election that is still unsettled all around them and of the very, very tense Barrett confirmation that came before. So I think all that inflects on it. But I suspect what you are going to hear this morning is a very, very technical, abstract argument. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I want to get to another voice here uh, from the callers before I go to Julie. Uh, Stephanie in Shelby Township. Uh, What's on your mind, Stephanie? Hi, Stephen. Um, I'm really concerned about this with the pre-existing conditions. Um, in 2004, I was uh, 32, and I got diagnosed with breast cancer, which was a big shock just because of my age. Um, and, and I went through treatment, and it was difficult. And, you know, I, I had to fight with my insurance company quite a bit. And throughout the process, I ended up having to stop work um, just to take care of myself uh-huh. and to finish treatment. And... Um, tried to keep my insurance up through COBRA, uh, but the COBRA was like $600 a month or something ridiculous. So that fell to the wayside. Uh, And I ended up at the last year of my treatment having no coverage whatsoever. Um, And then in turn had to file bankruptcy um, and I lost my house. And so it was quite an ordeal. Mm. Um, In 2018, my cancer came back. Um, and I'm in treatment for it now. If it wasn't for the ACA, they would have just, I mean, I went through so many years after my initial treatment before ACA was in place where they wouldn't even cover a screening mm. or, a, you know, I went through several years without getting a follow-up regarding my breast cancer. And wow. it's a very big deal. I don't think people understand because maybe they haven't dealt with it you know, personally or have a family member that's dealt with it personally. But if you don't have this in place, this pre-existing condition mandate, they can just say no for anything. They can make anything into a pre-existing condition. Sure. Uh, Stephanie, I really appreciate uh, your call and and you sharing your experience with the law. Uh, Julie Rovner, of course, those two calls really encapsulate the, the concerns that people have, the personal 
concerns that people have about this about this case. I, I wonder what you make of the the, the possibility uh, that something like this goes away, and and what we would end up having to do. There's there's a part of me that says we wouldn't go back to what we had before. That that just would be politically unsustainable. Um, but uh, if if the ACA were struck down, that at least would be where we had to start is where we were before. Yeah, that's right. You know, the ACA is the original, you know, glass half full uh, law. It did not fix everything. It was not intended to fix everything. It, In the end, it fixed even less than its sponsors had hoped because of the compromises they had to go through to get it through the House and the Senate with zero Republican votes. Um, but that said, for millions of people, including some of the people we've heard from this morning, it literally has been the difference between life and death. It has saved, it is not an understatement to say it has saved millions of lives for all of its shortcomings. And that's sort of where we sit right now as a society. Um, is it kind of, is it better than nothing? And and that question becomes a legislative question at some point, right? I mean, there's still all of this work to do. We're talking about the court today, but Congress still has uh, has real work to do. Is that not right, Julie? Congress hasn't even been able to fix sort of the little glitches mm -hmm. in the Affordable Care Act. In fact, if, the, if there had, if Congress had been willing to do even something small, there would never have been that 2015 uh, Supreme Court case because that that was basically a one sentence fix. This could be fixed with one sentence. The problem is, what do Republicans, who looks like will be in charge of the Senate still or close to it, uh, want to do? They say they want to protect pre-existing conditions, but they've been running for a decade on trying to get rid of this law. So. So it's going to shortly be time for them to put up or shut up. Yeah. Okay. All right. Julie Rovner and Dahlia Lithwick, always great to have both of your voices on the show. It was really great to have both of them together today. <laughs> Thank you both for being here. My pleasure. Thank you. Okay. That's going to do it for us today. This is 1019 WDET, Detroit's NPR station, your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll talk again tomorrow.